Toto. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're listening to Out of Oz, a podcast from Building 28 Church. Welcome back to Out of Oz, a Building 28 church podcast where we attack. Is that what (laughs) we attack? (laughs) Might feel like it. Explore. What is that? I don't even remember. All right. Address. Okay, address. Thank you. Welcome back to Out of Oz, a Building 28 church podcast where we address the fantasies and fallacies of modern Christianity with compassion, courage, and conviction. I'm your host, Peter Tragos, and with me as always is Aaron Curran, the pastor of Building 28. You're getting better and better, man. Those words were not in the same order, but we'll go ahead and use it. (laughs) They were not inspired. That was a retranslation of those words. But uh, all right, we have with us today, Aaron. Uh, We have familiar faces. We have a heavy topic today Mm. to discuss. um, Something that I would say in my pastoral ministry has been in the top three or four questions I've received the most. Um, And to help us answer this question, which you'll lay out for us here in a second, Pete, is uh, Rick Ruman back with us, one of our elders here at Building 28s. And uh, a big fan of the confessions. I don't know where your 1647 shirt is today, but uh, mm. and uh, and also over here, pastor of Sunrise Community Church up in Newport, Richie, the Hobbit himself. What was what was the nickname? Bilbo. 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 Yeah. Adam Powers. Bilbo Baggins. Good to be here. So yeah, do you want to be Frodo? I think he. I know. I think his nickname <laughs> no, should Bilbo. be Superpowers. That's good. That's good. I come up with the nicknames around here. Okay? I like it. I like it. <laughs> okay, so. It's probably the last bit of fun we're going to have on this podcast. Um, Today's topic, we are going to talk about where babies go when they die. Do all babies go to heaven? And we're also going to include in that mentally handicapped people who can't understand the gospel. And I think the reason this question comes up a lot, at least from where I hear it or talk about people, is we all obviously want this answer to be yes. It's so hard for us to understand how people that don't do anything or even have the opportunity to do anything on this earth, if they die, how is it fair that they go to hell, right? So that's going to be kind of the aura around this question. So is there even a debate at all, Aaron, about whether or not babies that die in miscarriages or one, two, three years old, if they die, is there even a debate as to whether they go to heaven or hell? Yeah. And so, yes, there is. There's definitely a lot of discussion around it. Um, I don't even know if it's a matter of fairness because most people would admit life's not fair. Right. Like, but it's a matter of justice. Can God be good and just and send not just babies, but I think the whole conversation is going to be infants, children without a cognitive uh, ability to understand the gospel and the claims of the gospel and their sin and mentally handicapped people. Like all, any anybody basically who is cognitively disabled from understanding where do they go and if they in fact go to hell – is God good? And Adam was just mentioning before the podcast, and I don't want to steal any thunder, but many believe, and perhaps Adam's included him on that, perhaps Rick is, that scripture is not clear enough on this. And so that's why debates and a difference of opinion exists. Is that, is that fair, Adam? I don't want to misrepresent that. I think it's clear. Enough. I think it's fair. <laughs> no, I do. I think it's clear enough. We'll get into it. I think it's fair from my my perspective. Uh, the key word there that I probably wouldn't have in my answer is enough. I, I just feel a personal pastoral, which is very personal because my wife and I experienced a miscarriage two years ago. 
a personal frustration that off the top of my head, I usually can only think of one place in the scripture where this is implied, not even explicit. And so just struggling in my own heart, why is this not clearer? For my own heart, my wife and I's own struggles walking through this and other people in our church, many congregations. Um, sadly, this is way more prevalent than people think it is, way more common than people think it is. And so I, I do have a little bit of a, I mean, not, not a concern, that's, that's a bad way to put it, but, but a mild frustration that why, why isn't this clearer? And that probably portrays and exposes my own heart that this is an area that I uh, need to trust God more than I am. But that's just, yes. I think anybody that has children, any Christian that has children can understand that because one of the most important things to me and my most important ministry, if I'm honest, is my kids yeah. and trying to bring them up in the ways of the Lord and raise them in biblical principles, catechize them just to make sure they they get it, you know, and they get as much of it as they can and they understand how the world works from that prism for, through those goggles, for lack of a better word. And they just grow up thinking there is no other way to understand it except through this and there's every explanation through the Bible. Yeah, amen. So to under to, to think about a baby dying before even ever having the chance to tell them the first thing about it, I agree with you. And as the least theologically studied person in the room, you know, I'll have a lot of questions as we go throughout this sure. as to why we'll start with Rick. Why do you think that it's not, why do you think the Bible is clear? Let's start with that. Okay. And what's your answer? Well, if it's so clear, we, we first we have to, it's important for us to back up a little bit. We all have yeah. to back up to okay. as reformed believers. We all hopefully all believe in total depravity, you know, for some of those capital T for some of those on the call. Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from my mother, time of my mother conceived. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth speaking lies. So most of us all accept the fact that a child is not innocent. And that becomes key. They're not innocent by their very nature. Do you see any difference between a miscarried child and a child that actually has an opportunity to live? I would say, I would say no. Okay. In the sense of, and this is where we, we're at some point going to have to take, or I'll jump to my conclusion part first, and then I can backtrack. But I'm coming more from, this is where I do think Baptists have a more difficult time with this because they look at the covenant relationship of families slightly different. And the canons of Dort, I think it's spelled out really nice, and I'm not going to get too uh, weird and heady, but I'm just going to state what it says. Since we are to judge of the will of God from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy not by nature, because that's critical, but in virtue of the covenant of grace in which they together with the parents are comprehended. Godly parents have no reason to doubt the election and salvation of their children. That's whom from it pleases God to call out of this life from infancy. So my conclusion is going to be, if you are listening and you are believers, you shouldn't doubt the salvation of your children for one. Okay. So miscarriages. But, okay. I, mean, I don't know how far we want to take this, but that doesn't include children that do live to grow up. So those growing up, and my question is going to be this idea of this, this age kind of concept. So we're going to talk about pastoral issues. How do you pastor the death of your th the 13-year-old? Right, I agree with you. In but other I mean, words, at some point you're going to have to say, and I know where, where Aaron's going to go with a little bit later, but let's also be real about it. 
we understand now the Arminian, for those maybe listening, those are people that believe like it's totally up to man's volition alone without God. God's on the outside. A man has to volitionally. We do not have time just, in this podcast correct, for that. Correct. But. but it does become important because even the adult, your adult child that grows up to demonstrate that he's not a believer only did not believe just because his nature went his way and God did not elect that person. So we should have as much, in a sense, sadness of your of your son or your daughter that's growing but up. But the issue is I think they they can understand why they would deserve, quote unquote, it or not. But, but what, what I want to well, know that, is- that is going to become critical. But, 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 We're going to talk just about Just based that. on the verse you read. Sure. Where does the line get drawn? Because you'd agree that all Christians' children's are not all Christians' children. Shouldn't doubt. I believe God, God in his mercy will elect some. I believe we oh. don't. In other words, he will. In okay, his so when you meant- The work has to, by the way, I think we'll all agree here and Aaron will as well, that we all have- I, keep being I know, on I want to hear what he said before you say- but, but as far as the actual- salvation of the child it comes from the same exact work it's, it's sinner all saved an act by grace of of god's sovereign grace electing grace. for that person no one is in heaven Correct. child adult who is Correct. not elect by god okay Correct. like we, we get that no, we all agree with that but hold on salvation yeah. is the same so when you said the they should not doubt their salvation you do not mean that they are saved you mean the ones that will will the ones that won't won't but I mean, that they but they because you said they shouldn't doubt and i i took that to mean okay so the babies are saved of believers, we shouldn't really doubt it. I mean, there could be a possibility that they're not. It's a possibility, just like it's a possibility that you're a 13-year-old that's professing to believe and going to church with every week, uh, and they might not. you're mixing now because I Why? think we gotta, you got to draw a line at some yeah. point. Yeah. You have to draw a line at some point because it's not this, a miscarried child. is not the same as a 20-year-old child. It's just not. Rick is would, it the same as an eleven-year-old? In people's in people's minds, I should say. I get it, but see, the way I have, look at it, I think take, it is the same. And this is the issue. We have to take. I believe some of the emotion out of this, it's hard because it's an emotional topic, but this is where the church over time has created all kinds of interesting things. Universalism, because people can't grasp the concept of hell at all. So they become universalists. I and mean, we have a lot of these, these issues will, will, will come up. So, so Rick, would, yes. would you say that only elect babies go to heaven rather than saying all babies go to heaven? Correct. Yes. I believe the West... The Westminster Confession of Faith I has elect well. babies in there. I, I know the I London Baptist a... Confession of Faith took out the elect part, but I believe yeah. all elect babies go to heaven. And the... yes, yeah. One of my seminary professors said the same thing, yeah. and I've and I've always struggled with that, honestly, as opposed to all babies. Well, the... now they could all be elect. Yeah, it's I think possible. That's, that's the question. That, so all gotta... babies are elect. No, but I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't know. And I know. Well, let's hear what Aaron has to say. All right. Yeah. So. A couple of things. He's one, here, one, everybody. He's yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Not hey, he is here. I, I took a nap there yeah. for a second, but um, <laughs> no, I think I think the age of accountability. I don't know what what Adam and Rick think on this. The age of accountability is a complete farce invented mm-hmm. by Baptists and Pentecostals in the last century, really, um, to make themselves feel good. And so they'll set it at different because it's subjective. There's there's no biblical evidence for it. We'll set it at like six or eight or twelve. And so I was in churches growing up where it was like, well, the age of accountability is ten, but my four year old got saved. Well, how is that possible? Like that's not doesn't even make sense. And so the age of accountability is not a biblical concept at all. However, I do think there is a a level of understanding if we want to use that that phraseology. So you and just flipped it. 
No, I don't think it's an age like universally. I don't think it's seven or eight. I think okay, that, but it's a it's a step. It's a point, an age, a point. We say age. It's different for of, each individual. Correct. It's not universal. Correct. I, I don't think all age of accountability people are saying that it has to be like oh tenth birthday, but before that they're not. Yeah. So at some point, yes, but you do believe that there is a mental age of accountability. It's so the mental ability to. I, I, I believe. Ascent. I believe that there is a. Okay, so I don't know how much we just want to let out of the bag, <laughs> but I see a difference between what Scripture would call, when we talked about total depravity, what Scripture mm-hmm. would call inherited sin, imputed sin, and individual sin. And I see ramifications for those. And so um, the inherited sin is, is the original sin. So we have inherited our sin nature from Adam. The imputed sinfulness, like we, we receive imputed righteousness and salvation where we are counted righteous in Jesus. Imputed sin is that we are counted sinful in Adam, Romans chapter 5. So we're born sinful, like we're born sinners. I believe that. However, I would hold the position that our individual sin is what is condemnatory. I would agree with that. Don't freak out. But, 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 but. That verse, but deal with Psalm 58.3, (laughs) where from the womb, then they go astray from birth, speaking lies. That seems to imply like immediately you see children... I mean, you see a toddler, you, you, you don't see have to teach them the word. You don't no. have to teach them. Sure. Yeah. So I agree with okay, that. So I, I agree. I so agree. it's really quick. Now we can debate about miscarriages, you know, maybe not mm. having that chance, but let's go from the fact of a toddler. We immediately know not able to understand even language yet. They're sinning, right? Right. Okay. They are sinning. Okay. But there is a difference, I believe, between knowing that what you're doing is sinful, which comes through general revelation, I believe. Romans chapter one, that we can look up and see that there's a God and we refuse to acknowledge him as such. So I think you don't have to have special revelation or biblical revelation to know that you're sinful. You have to have biblical revelation to trust Jesus, to know the gospel, but just to understand, hey, I have violated justice. I have suppressed God. I think that that has to, that individual sin and the awareness of it um, is a critical component here that factors in because... And, and you already mentioned it, but Romans chapter one to me is a very decisive passage because they bring upon themselves destruction because they, although they knew God, they refused to glorify him as God uh, and their foolish heart was darkened. Therefore, they're without excuse. Yeah. And, and so the, the inexcusable is to look upon creation and know that there's a creator and yet reject him as such. Like that to me is condemnatory. So bring it back to the discussion though. So what you're saying is that there is a, an awareness different from person to person where they don't fit in yet to that Romans 1 general Absol- revelation. Absolutely. So that's, that's the argument I idea. Make, that when, when you look at Re- Revelation 20, I think it's verse 12, that, they're, that people are damned for their works, for their rejection of the Lamb. Right. And so they're not damned just by, and I want to be clear on this, they're not damned just by being born a sinner, even though they are born a sinner, they are totally depraved, but they're damned, their works condemn them. And so I think that when you look at somebody like, like a child who does not, like um, another passage that comes to mind is in, is in Jonah, I think it's chapter four, verse 11, where God says to Jonah, do you want me to condemn all of Nineveh where there's 120,000 people who don't even know their right hand from their left? Like they, they aren't even aware, like they have no mental recognition 
of what's right and what's wrong. And that was a way of, of discerning that biblically between right hand and left is this is right and this is wrong. They don't even have an awareness of that. And you want me to curse all of them as well. So it would, it would seem in the heart of God there that there's a distinction being made, even though all of those 120,000 in Nineveh were still sinners by birth, they were not yet sinners by choice. They had not suppressed the revelation of God. And therefore, I would also contend that there is a different means of salvation, not, not merit or mediator, but different means of salvation for the cognitively disabled, meaning that our means of salvation is faith alone, right? Yeah. Like that's the only way we're saved. So even, yeah. even the confessions had have to agree with this, that there has to be a, a means, the, the mediator is still Christ. We're still justified by Christ, whether we're infant or mentally handicapped or cognitively able. The mediator stays the same. The method of grace alone stays the same. But the means of, or the gospel mandates of repent of your sin and believe in Christ only apply to the mentally able. Otherwise, they're all condemned. That's the problem here. Otherwise, all children are in hell. There's no well, way. See, and I, I take issue with that. So, and I'm, I'm going to, no, nobody cares about my opinion. Well, so. Hold on one second. Okay. Oh, yeah, what do. I'm saying is logically, we understand that if the gospel mandate applies equally to all people, even those who are mentally incapable of understanding their sin in the gospel, if it applies equally and the only means of reconciliation to God is faith, then those who can't exercise that saving faith are cursed. Now, I don't believe that, but I'm saying logically, or else we have to accept that there's another means whereby God infuses grace to the mentally okay. incapable. So hold on, hold on one second, because we've heard, I want to I yeah, get yeah. to Adam real quick, but I want to couch it in this so people can understand a couple things. Number one, Aaron Curran is one of the best explainers of Calvinism, of predestination, of how all of that works. Okay. Well, hopefully. He, he really is. He really is. We disagree on some parts, but he really is. And because we, right we, we did a home group, right? We did a home <laughs> group. He comes in, explains it after me so much better. I'm, I'm not good at this. I start arguments. You know, I'm a little harsh <laughs> with certain things, but he explains it. And the way he explains it a lot of times, because people say, well, why is it fair or just that this person that this person goes to hell and this person doesn't, no matter what they grow up learning, doing, whatever? And he says, you know, we all sin and we all deserve hell. So it's just for us to go to hell. So for him to say that and saying that the condemnation is because of our works, having this point of view is consistent and makes sense, right? From somebody from how you look at it from my point of view, and I, I want to now move it over to Adam because I think he shares this part. We made a joke last time about double predestination. Where, where God chooses who goes to heaven and he chooses who goes to hell, right? That's that's the only logical way I see it. How does that change the way that you view this topic, Adam? Oh, wow. Because I, he's, I saying, he's saying, <laughs> basically, they can't go to hell because they don't have the, con the, the works of condemnation. Right. I'm saying it can happen either way because God's the one that controls who goes to heaven and hell. And the way I would respond to his, the issue I have with his is, if they're not able to have saving faith, they can't go to heaven. Well, why can't they have saving faith if God can give them saving faith as a mentally handicapped person or as a one-month-old? Just to be clear, I'm saying that the those who cannot look up at creation, cognitively understand that there's a God and suppress him, have a legitimate excuse when Romans, Paul says that they are inexcusable. But why, why, can, why can a mentally handicapped person not do that? I'm saying if they, if they have such a limitation mentally— like my two-year-old does, where they can't look up okay. and see that. We have to go back, though, because right. you keep quoting Romans, that section of Romans okay. 1. Sure. 
if you look at that section, it's saying, so they're without excuse. What's happening? The first Verse 18 sets it up. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he pours out the wrath of unrighteousness now that is taking place, giving them hearts over to obviously homosexual activity and they exchange the truth of God for a lie. So the the, the without excuse is dealing with the condemnation that is actually coming in a material sense, not a future judgment sense. And uh, you're, you're, could it be both? It yeah, could that, be. It could potentially be both, and I, I, think and I don't both. disagree that it, that it, that there that man is. I do believe man is not without excuse. Mm-hmm. That is the normative way, but the normative way, like we talked about, as far as salvation goes, is yes, professing faith. But could God still regenerate a heart without them professing faith? We'd both agree that absolutely, yeah. he certainly could. So then, why do you take it to the other side where you have to have the ability? to cognitively say, let's be real, no one that's an adult is going to believe unless God God works on their heart. Absolutely. So this idea that we somehow like- I see no difference in the justice. So yeah, so somehow like, if it's not for the fact that it's a child that we emotionally look at and have this deep, um, we should have compassion. We should have compassion on a child. It's, it's, It's a beautiful thing. But in reality- the same compassion should be held towards the unbelieving adult who God in his divine providence decided to pass over and leave them in their state. Yeah, see, I see them as completely different. Um, I know. In you, that, you do, in but... that, and I've, I've made this very clear, and this is why I buck against the, in my opinion, the very, the very uh, disturbing doctrine of double predestination. And if we're talking about predestination in the same sense, that in the same way that God, I, I believe well, in reformation. Yeah, God left them. He didn't. He didn't. Correct. He, just like so he not, left the baby and sure, could have. Sure. So, but the twenty-year-old or forty-year-old or sixty, Christopher Hitchens, who's one of my favorite atheists, he always said, "If if you hear about a deathbed confession, don't believe it." He's a classic Romans one. Saw that there's a God, refused to mm-hmm. honor and glorify Him as such suppressed and he is without excuse now. When he stands before the judgment seat, he's without excuse now condemned and he can't be his excuse can't be you didn't choose me his because there's no excuse he went to hell of his own volition he went to hell of his own volition a baby does not go to hell of their own volition like that there there is an excuse there like so here's my question do you think it's unjust then for god to save certain babies and not others nothing that god does is unjust so just we're clear but at the same time god is one who's given us our concepts of justice. And so when he writes in scripture, everything he does is just, he's writing it so that we may understand. And we know that all that God does is right. And so sending somebody like Christopher Hitchens to hell who suppressed the truth and willfully rejected God versus sending an, an unborn infant or a, an 18 month old to hell who has not suppressed the truth and has not cognitively rejected God. There is a difference there and when we talk about justice, like there's a there's a big difference between. Somebody- I don't think that justice is in rejecting God. The justice is has to be laid out by God because of sin. And so you keep flipping it into it has to be this comprehension of 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 God, and you pretty much would only be able to really get that from Romans one, I think. And I so think you're it, saying it's not that, that it would condemns be us. unjust, but just that he wouldn't do it. I think that's what Aaron's saying. Yeah, I, I think I think as as I understand it, it would 
I don't believe that God does that because I do think it would be unjust. Now, if, if I get to heaven to glory and God says, actually, I did do this, I'm not going to argue with him over justice at that point. But there is Good. a, there is, there is a, ju- <laughs> there's an aspect of justice that we need to fight for. It's like God, God is not a malicious tyrant. Like God, God is benevolent and gracious and he calls all men everywhere to, to repent and believe the gospel. Um, that's the whole the general with your call. argument, in my opinion, is I think people have made this same argument to me and to you that somebody in a remote tribe of Africa doesn't have. I know you say that they see the creation of God and make Romans decisions. Romans one says that, but yeah. I to me I think that that's the age of accountability issue is just not knowing when somebody's brain, heart, whatever it needs to get there gets there, and I feel much more comfortable and confident in my position that is just 100% up to God. So I think there's a lot of Calvinists who read scripture as, will not the judge of all the earth do what he wants? Right. And we know that's true, but that's not what scripture says in that passage. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He's painting for us a courtroom scenario of a judge and he's doing what's right. And that's basically our understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit, biblically of what is right and true and good. Um, we're, we're big proponents of the Imago Dei and anti-abortion and because we know that that's injustice. And there's people that would argue, oh, no, 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 there's, it's actually just like God doesn't uh, study scripture. God doesn't really care about like babies and the unborn as much. And we would say that's absolutely fallacious. That's, that's not justice that God does care. And the, the person in the tribe in New Guinea, the, the, in Africa, person in America, who's never subjected to the true gospel. There's mm. lots of them. They're subjected yep. to false gospels. They're, they're completely culpable because they understood, like, they, they might say, I mean, Christopher Hitchens would be like, I saw no proof of God. But, but we would argue, Romans 1, that he knew there was a God. He knew there was a God, and he refused to it's honor and glorify. It's a newer should have known standard, as we would say in the law. Yeah, he, knew, he, he could see from whatever age you want to throw on that. It's not a universal age. But from a, uh, from a young age, he knew that there was a God. And he refused to glorify. Larry Taunton actually has a great book called The, the Faith of Christopher Hitchens. And he argues in it that, um, and he was friends with Christopher Hitchens, that, that Hitchens rejected God, but not intellectually as he claimed, but based upon experiences that he had in uh, church school, religious school. And I think that's how it is for people. We have these experiences in our life that harden us to the Lord, that make us bitter against God. We know there's a God. Now, we don't know specifically his name is Jesus by general revelation. Um, but we know there is a creator to whom we owe submission and allegiance and we refuse to honor him as such. And that brings condemnation and that makes us without excuse. That's how I see it. I don't see how, so there is a huge difference between a cognitively able 14 or 40 year old in, in Africa and a baby or an infant or a, a person so mentally handicapped in such a severe way, they can never understand the gospel. Like that to me would cry, injustice. And I'm not going to, Romans 9, I'm not going to argue with God if he says that's just and they, they go to hell, then so be it. That just does not seem to make sense. I don't see the without excuse in Romans 1 dealing with judgment in the sense of, it is obviously dealing with judgment and what's going to take place there, but judgment in the sense of, I believe any human's sin is enough to separate them forever from God. It's an infinite offense against God. And you're saying you're adding to that, they have to know who God is in order for it to now all of a sudden become just for God to punish sin. And I'm saying- It does that, a little bit sound like, Aaron, you're saying the only sin 
worth condemnation is rejecting God. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say worth condemnation. It doesn't I, come into effect. I just, I just any that, sin before that is okay. And, and they're not. And innocent not people okay. don't go to heaven. So just so we're clear, so right. it's not just because. Uh, and a baby's not innocent. They're born in sin. They they have the the inherited imputed sin nature. Like so, so and they do sin. They're, they're sinners, and they do sin unknowingly. Like when when a baby comes out, they come out speaking lies. Psalm fifty eight three. So they they have that. Um, but and that's th- not enough to condemn them. It is. It is enough. If God says it's not, but what I what I'm arguing is that from Scripture it would seem that condemnation comes inexcusable um, rejection of God. And you talked about sin, but to me, all sin ultimately is the suppression of God and the rejection of Christ. Like that's what all sin is. Um, and so, to me, as I look at this, that is what leads to destruction and death, condemnation. You know, like I said, Revelation twenty eight twelve. And so that that's how I understand this. I would see for somebody listening, I would see, I think it's pretty clear at this point that I would agree with the confessions that all like babies go to heaven, but I would argue that all babies are elect. So um, yeah, and I want to get to that too. I really want to hear what Adam has to say about this. Yeah. But so, so just to, so everybody following along, Rick believes all elect babies go to heaven, but that doesn't necessarily mean all babies. Aaron would say all babies go to heaven because they are all elect or part of the elect. So Adam, hmm. tell me what you think. Have you thought about my question about how that would affect somebody that may think a little bit differently about predestination than Aaron does? And also with your experience and how you said you were almost kind of unsure at the beginning of how you feel about all this. Well, I'm 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 not unsure. I just okay. have some frustrations. Okay. Some honest frustrations with it because I get both these guys' points and I appreciate both the points. I think there's problems with both their points. Which is what, why? So let's hear. As a pastor, I I I would lean more toward your position. I trust that God is good and that He knows what is best on what to do with this. When you said your, you mean Aaron's, right? Yours. Oh, mine. Yeah. Oh, okay. You you earlier made a brief comment that God knows what is best hundred percent of the time. Right. I just trust Him. Right. Which I think is a good answer. I do think some people though may take that because this is such a difficult issue. And it's very difficult, like Rick, you were saying, to separate the logical from the emotional here, especially if you've been through this. It's such a difficult issue to talk about it that from facing the difficulty, you don't want to go into the details that these guys have just gone into. But I lean very heavily on on 2 Samuel 12. And I think a lot of people do, rightfully so. I don't know if Rick does the way his face is, maybe (laughs) not, but... David That's after, him outpouring emotion, but go on. David, after he has uh, lost his child with Bathsheba there after the sin in 2 Samuel 11, they have the baby in chapter 12 after the rebuke. Um, the baby is struck by the Lord, afflicted um, because of David's sin. Uh, justice perhaps might be a conversation there, but God is always just and David fasts while the baby's alive. He prays. He asks the Lord to heal, to restore. Never does. The child dies. And David says in 2 Samuel 12, 23, now he is dead. Why should I continue fasting? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I think the unhelpful way to interpret this is I will go to him, meaning I'll, I will also go to the grave. And I think he means I'll see him in heaven one day. Right, right. That's, that's, that's what I think. Some people think this is just referring to the whole death dying process, the Old Testament doctrine of Sheol, that David will also go where the child has, has gone. 
uh, but he will not return to me. I think it's more, no, I will be reunited with him one and day. I think so he will. I will not I think fast. he will actually be reunited because again, I go back to God deals covenantally with people and families and he was of the covenant family. So I do believe we it's should. Very interesting. And, we and, doubt. And, 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 and that's oftentimes where but obviously so that's in a Presbyterian circles, we, 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 cert- we baptize infants into the covenant. And if I sure. can push back, I think there's far less evidence for a covenantal view I agree on on baby. I think that that is just a systematic approach. Yeah, I um, can't understand from the candidates that. of Dort, and I have great respect for the candidates of Dort. Like I love them, but I think that that is a systematic approach. That is this covenantal view of David's child going to heaven. I, I would I would argue that. So I I've actually heard people argue not that not as much about Sheol, Adam as this is just a father in right. lament who's just kind of offering right. up this mm. this prayer and while it's inspired in the sense that it happened that he said this his words we hear people lying in scripture right. um and so his words we can't take him to the bank what we I hear find, people thinking and feeling in scripture as a human and what what they I go find through. very interesting though is the way that he grieves Absalom after Absalom's death oh it's a mess um in comparison or contrast to the way he grieves his son. Because Absalom was old enough to reject the yes. truth. Like, and this one clear, was not. Absalom was clearly an unbeliever. Right, he for clearly sure. did not worship Yahweh. He's a mess. And, and so <laughs> um, we grieve, we grieve. I mean, if I had a 20-year-old son who died without Christ, I would grieve him in a way that I would not grieve a 20-year-old son who died with Christ right. or an infant who died, mm. I believe, in Christ. Sure. Um, like, so... We think we might have had a miscarriage early on. Most likely we had a miscarriage, at least one early on. Um, we grieve the loss of that child. I grieve with people. I will be honest, I, I had a view, and I'm not going to say it was like Rick's. I think it was further than Rick's because I had a view that the only means of salvation was faith and repentance. Now, I, w- I would still hold to that view for the cognitively the normative way. Right, like the, the commands sure. of the gospel are for those who can understand the gospel, Romans chapter 10. And so th- like – like or understand that, that they've suppressed truth. But I had this view as an early pastor, a youth pastor, until I had a teenager in my youth group who got pregnant out of wedlock. And then once we rallied her to the concept of keeping the baby and, mm. and she was walking with Jesus, then she lost the baby. And the emotion, the raw emotion of that young lady um, sitting down with me and talking with me and her parents, she, that, that emotion should never inform our minds about scripture. But I think the 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 positive place for emotion in Christianity is to make us rethink. It it shouldn't shape how we think, but it should cause us. I think emotion is there to make us pause for a second and go, hold on just a second. Am I going to really come down dogmatically on this? Uh, You know, am I going to really say that? Because if I do, as I mentioned earlier, all babies, all mentally handicapped people are outside of Christ. If they have to repent and believe the gospel, um, if that applies to all people, not just the cognitively able. And so for me, when I look at somebody like Absalom and he dies and David mourns and grieves post-death in a way that he does not at all for his son who dies there in 2 Samuel 12, who he says, he can't come to me. It seems that David is absolutely convinced as a man who walks with the Lord, as a man who's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write scripture, is absolutely convinced that whether it's a covenantal union, which I have a hard time getting there, or whether it is a reality that God mercifully extends grace to all who can't understand. Part of that is they don't, that, that, that there is a legitimate excuse, but, but more than that, because he, he's still, they're born in sin, so he still has to extend grace. He still has to regenerate and quicken the soul, which I believe he does for all um, unborn and 
and and children and, and so forth. But I think there, that that Second Samuel passage does actually there is some some power to that. Mm-hmm. I think is important to consider. And yeah. I think there's also power though. Before you diss on the covenantal concept, this is Paul speaking oh, he's, in First Corinthians. First Corinthians seven. First Corinthians seven. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. You know, why would Paul be talking about the children being holy if they're such reprobate, horrible kids? See, I tend to hold to the view, which is slightly a lot different than Baptists, that I believe children born into covenant families, Christian homes, we assume they're elect until proven otherwise Mm. versus Baptists (laughs) typically hold to, I believe I have a heathen reprobate until he shows that he's one of the I'm not going to disciple my kids. I'll evangelize them. It's flipped. Yeah. I assume my children are of the elect until they prove as they get older that, hey, they've walked away from the faith and they're not Maybe the other way around. That's how I look at it. I'm with you on this, but maybe a more helpful way to say it. Calvin would explain it like this, that I, I believe my children are in the visible covenant community because we are believers. Sure. One day I pray by God's grace, they enter the invisible. See, I would a hundred percent land there. Our our baby dedications we do here, people have called them uh, infant baptisms (laughs) without water. Okay. Like, so, so I'm, I'm a big, I'm, I'm covenantal. Um, not, I'm not not, saying it guarantees it. No, no, no. I I agree. What I wasn't, I wasn't capping on it. Just to be clear, okay. I wasn't capping. I was just saying I see a clear direct line of scripture on the idea of mental capability and suppression of truth than I do on the covenantal. Like okay. I see a clear line. Right yeah, I see a clear line, direct line, just to go. Right. And and before we started this conversation, we talked about the frustration. I don't find any frustration on this. I find that because God has guaranteed to us that the Judge of all the earth does what's right, that what everything God does is pure and right and good. Um, the passages that we've talked through, I would I would agree with B.B. Warfield and Charles Spurgeon and John Newton and, and others that say all babies are elect, all babies, uh, all children that cannot cognitively understand the gospel and suppress the truth are immediately in heaven upon death. Like they're immediately in heaven. I believe that that my unborn child will see it will see again. Uh, in heaven. I believe that your unborn child will see in heaven. Uh, I believe anybody listening, and, and that's not to paint Rick or anybody who would be more like in Rick's camp of, because Rick's not saying that anybody, that any unborn children do I'm go to hell just so we're clear. I would believe the, both of you guys should expect that. Right. Yeah. I agree. Right. Yeah, exactly. But more from a covenantal standpoint. Right. And, 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 but and see, I, I would also that. say to the mother who had an abortion mm. before she was a believer, and now she's a believer, I would say unreservedly that her child is in heaven, that she will see that baby one day, even though that baby was not conceived in the, in the covenant. Um, you know, that there was, she was a rebel. She was against Christ, but I would, I would say, and, and even for the person listening here, who's like, I lost a child or an unborn child or had an abortion. And I, I don't even follow Jesus. Like we have unbelievers listen to this. I would believe, and Charles Spurgeon actually has, um, I don't know if I, I recorded this, but he used it as an evangelistic strategy, which you might, guys might disagree with. He was Baptist though. So, sure. um, but, uh, but he actually said, and I didn't record this, but uh, in one of his sermons, he says, uh, if you're here outside of Christ and you lost a child, be sure that that child is in heaven today. And I would plead with you to be reconciled to Christ so you can be reconciled to that child. Um, and so he, he took that approach of evangelizing all- it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Using, I mean, which is true. I mean, the, the number one reason we should come to Christ is because Christ is worthy right. and like, he's worth it. But also there there are benefits, secondary benefits to coming For to Christ. Sure. We'll be reuni- sure. reunited with. Okay, just to just to hammer mm-hmm. down some some 
details. So Rick, do you think only Christian families who lose children, babies, handicapped, uh, no, God could certainly. Okay, He could certainly well, the way save. He just kind of and you said. What I think I'm he's saying, saying is, at least they are. Th- those. Th- I, I would say least. we shouldn't doubt that. You know, and and again, see, if we really come back to again total depravity, I mean, it's really the hardest part to be, for us to accept is God is under no obligation to even save the child. We automatically assume He is just because, because of anyone our, just because right. like anybody I, and that's exactly and, and that, where I, and that's I, wanna, I go with it right I, I know it's 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 more heartfelt because there's the, the the emotion aspect of it it's a child or the child didn't even leave the womb maybe it was right. like you know stillborn all these difficult things that we have to deal with and counsel with but in reality like we talked about the 20 year old you can say yeah they knew god but the reality is if god's holy spirit didn't work on their heart in the same way he would work on the baby's heart they're not going to know the Lord. Right. And as a parent, I would struggle with that, losing my 17-year-old or my 19-year-old. Right. I, you know? And I, I agree with you. And, and I think that that is a difference right. between what Aaron's saying. Now, could God definitely save every mentally challenged? Yeah. Every, certainly. He might. I just can't dogmatically make the I claim that you. he would. I That's where I stand you. on it. Which? Just like you can't dogmatically say that the 17-year-old kid who goes to church and says he's a Christian is actually a Christian going to heaven. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, That's, but there's hope there. I, I agree with you. Yeah, there's, there's at least hope. Right. One of the one of the things I think is interesting is as I hear you kind of describe this, it doesn't surprise me at all. And like I said, it's consistent with how I you, see God as gracious. What, what I'm going to say, gracious. what I was going to say, no, is you go that way. way though, that's dangerous because if you Hold go on. that way, that's what the homosexual lobby says. No, no, no. Oh, well, God's loving. How can you know? He, no, he, he would. He would never let two people that love each other so, not be homosexual. Interestingly enough, I'm just saying Romans a, chapter one has a lot to say about that. Of course. <laughs> yeah, so, so there, there's a difference once again between somebody who cognitively suppresses the truth, understands that God suppresses his truth, and someone who does not. God has given us our ideas of justice and goodness, and so that's where. Like this does not factor in somebody just going, hey, well, I want to live with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or I want to sin and, and you know, I, I haven't been convinced this. No, no, no. Like that's that's not – that does not apply. Like God has given you a mind to understand right. there's truth, but absolutes. The, I'm just saying I can though. believe God is gracious without necessarily believing that every single I'm not single saying that anybody right. here been, doesn't believe that's you're coming We've done this five times. Okay. So listen. <laughs> the, the issue that I want to ask you about. So you're describing this, right? And yep. I hear a lot of – I just can't believe God would do this. The attributes of God don't show that he would do this. That's a lot of what people say about just general predestination and how we get saved, that it is fully up to God. Why is this different? Is it purely just because of man's responsibility? Like you just lean into man's responsibility there. No. So the absolution, because I do agree with Adam, is certainly not as clear as text on predestination. Okay. Um, And so when our emotion runs up against scripture, when our ideas of goodness and mercy and fairness butt up against scripture, we lose. And we take what scripture but says as truth. Absolutely. So predestination is unarguable. I mean, it's just all over the New Testament. But when you come to this idea of, so good, solid, reformed theologians are not going to argue on, they might argue nuance of predestination, but they're not going to argue an unconditional election that it's not true. Like they're, they're there. But they will argue on this point. And a lot of them have come and landed where I land on this Mm -hmm. um, because their ideas of God's goodness and justice and rightness and how he acts for the unborn and the cognitively disabled do not butt up against scripture. Like there's no scripture that's going to refute this. 
And I would actually argue there's scripture that leads us very clearly in the direction of this without maybe maybe as dogmatically as predestination or salvation by, by faith alone and Christ alone does. But there's scripture that leads us in this direction that gives us great hope. And perhaps, just like with so many other doctrines that there's a little ambiguity on, perhaps God didn't leave it as crystal clear because he's calling us to trust him, to trust his goodness and that's his it. justice, that's you know, it. in this. Sure. Um, and I think that's important, but I don't think that he's left us with no indication on how he's acted here. And so that's the difference. Like if we, if we say, oh, I just can't believe that God would condemn the homosexual, but yet scripture says that, or that God would condemn the 17 year old. Or condemn anyone to hell and that yeah, would be universal. But scripture says that then we're wrong. But when scripture leads us in a direction or doesn't dogmatically say something, then we fall back on God's attributes and his justice and his goodness and our understanding biblically of those uh, to draw a conclusion. So as a wrap, I think the four of us all agree on two things, that God does not damn to hell all babies, miscarried babies, one-year-old, two-year-old handicapped people. Okay. And number two, that we can confidently stand in trusting God to do what's just and what he what he believes is just, right, fair, gracious, loving. And that's what the final result is of this. So we can at least have comfort yeah. in that for the people that have gone through it. Sure. As it doesn't, like David said, bring the baby back to me. But yeah. you know, we can at least rest in God's sovereignty. Absolutely. I think that's the key. And even from a pastoral standpoint, I mean, I'm not a pastor and I haven't had to deal with the issues you guys have. Well, Aaron had says to dealt pastor elders. Lay pastor. But yeah, but it's not paid for. I do think it's important to always try to shift, even in any kind of funeral or death, to try to shift the focus to the living and focus on their relationship and 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 the trust like Peter talked about and, and trusting God and really having to rely on him for your strength during this difficult time and not focus so much on the departed, whether it happens to be a child or an elderly loved one, things like that. But you guys, I would do a funeral like that. Yeah. But I would not sit with a couple who just experienced this like that. Mm. I would, uh, like when it, when it happened to us, we'd, we had an elder and his wife come over and they just sat with us Mm. and we talked through it and we prayed, we cried and, uh, their presence was more than enough of of an encouragement, and that was immensely helpful. Yeah, immensely. Um, we're we're going through Ecclesiastes right now on Thursdays and Sundays, and so I'm in Ecclesiastes six, which has been called one of the darkest chapters in Scripture this week to finish up our first half of Ecclesiastes, and um, Solomon compares the man, which I, I believe is all humanity, who has stuff, wealth. In, cha- in chapter six, verse two, wealth, possessions, honor, but never enjoys them. He compare. He says it, it's worse for that man than it is for a stillborn child. Mm. Okay, he says that in Ecclesiastes six. Now that's ludicrous and ridiculous, unless Solomon is talking about spiritual realities. There, if he's just saying that. If mm. Peter has like the best golf clubs, but he never gets out and hits the links and enjoys them, <laughs> then it's worse off for the for him than the stillborn. That's ridiculous. Like that's that's ludicrous. But if he's saying that if Peter has all that stuff and temporarily enjoys that stuff, but doesn't enjoy them as the good gifts of God that he's talked about in Ecclesiastes three and five, as a means of submitting to the Lord, like he's not enjoying them as a follower of Christ, then it's worse off for Peter an unfollower of Christ than for the child. And Solomon says, because the child, the stillborn child who has no name, the Hebrews often wouldn't name their stillborn children, hmm. um, who 
doesn't d- demonstrate his personality or her personality, but it's better off for that child because they're grieved over. And Solomon says, because that child finds rest. Now, what I find very interesting there in that passage is that the saints everlasting rest, Baxter, right? This, and I'm, I'm going to talk about this one. Sunday, but the saints everlasting rest is that that's the hope of eternity. That's the hope of the life to come. And so that's another passage, while it doesn't explicitly say that, I look at this and go, the, the man who has, the woman who has everything, which we all do, I mean, we all have possessions, we all have, but we never find rest, are worse off than the unborn who never experience all this stuff, but find rest. And I know there, there's discretion and people can, 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 can try to rip that apart, but that was just another comfort to me this week because I'm preparing to preach, but I'm also preparing for this podcast and going, Man, there's there's a rest that is guaranteed there in Ecclesiastes that, once again, it's wisdom literature and poetic. And so I know there's a lot of different ways you can look at that. But the, the clearest way that I can look at that is if Solomon is talking about spiritual realities and he's talking about a spiritual reality of rest for the stillborn, that the person who has everything in this life but doesn't have a submission to God does not have. Thanks for listening to Out of Odds. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen. Out of Oz is produced by Building 28 Church and Podcast Royale. You can find out more about this show and Building 28 by visiting outofozpodcast.com. New episodes drop every Monday and you can get each one automatically by subscribing in your favorite podcast app.